We are in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. And uh, I want to remind you of the purpose that John wrote his Gospel for. And the purpose is found in the 20th chapter where he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the miracles that John includes in his book, are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gospel of John and its purpose and how it conveys that purpose to us. As we look this morning in Jesus healing the blind man, may our faith be strengthened. May we have confidence in who Christ is. And may those who are still wondering about Jesus, may they be drawn to him because of his great power and his great love. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, it's the sixth miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel. And it's to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised and long-awaited Messiah. John is building a case based upon the miraculous and supernatural activity of Jesus, that Jesus is more than an extraordinary man. He is the promised and long-awaited Messiah. He is God come in the flesh. The first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John is he turns the water into wine, made 300 gallons of the best wine that anyone had ever tasted. And then an official of the of the the culture there comes to him and Jesus heals his son. Then there's the man who waited by the pool of Siloam to be placed into it. He was healed. He fed 5,000 men, no telling how many women and children were included in that. And there were 12, the leftovers were more than people could carry. He took a shortcut to Capernaum as he walked across the Sea of Galilee. And this morning that we find the healing of the man born blind. And the healing of the blind was a specific messianic activity. Isaiah 29 says, in a very short time will not Lebanon be turned into a fertile field, and the fertile field seem like a forest. In that day the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see, speaking of the time when the Messiah will here be here. And in Isaiah 42, this is, what the Lord, the God, the, this is what God the Lord says, the creator of heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth and all the, that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk upon it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be, to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. For those who are reading the gospel, for those that were involved in the event that we're going to see in John 9, it should have been a clue of who Jesus was. And in John 9, Jesus encounters a man who from birth had been blind, but whose life will never be the same. I just want to sort of poll the congregation. How many of you know a blind person? Raise your hand. How many of you have a blind person in your family? 
it's, it's, blindness is relatively rare in our culture. It's still a significant handicap, but within our culture are resources that help minimize the impact. There are um, organizations which assist in education. They, they provide training towards independence. If they wanted a guide dog, from my research, they're provided free of charge. And in general, in generally speaking, the society of at large, we make accommodations and, and we recognize the handicap blindness can be. If you see a blind person in uh, uh, Fred Meyer shopping along with an assistant, you don't switch their mild salsa for hot salsa. If they're standing in line, you don't sort of subtly cut in front of them because you know they can't see you. Um, if you were uh, in a retail establishment, you'd give them the correct change. But in, in ancient times, in, in the first century, that was not the case. Blindness was a much more common problem. Unsanitary conditions, especially those with water, made blindness a lot more prevalent than it is in our day. And this man was cut off from everyday activities. <clears throat> he had never seen his family. He had never seen his friends or the world around him. He was probably still unmarried because he was living with his parents. And unless his parents or unless his family had significant financial resources to care for him, they were relegated to begging if they were to survive. The blind, especially this man, lived on the edge of Jewish society and were cast entirely upon the mercy of other people. Join with me, if you will, reading in John 9. <clears throat> That's the context for which we approach the passage. As he went along, speaking of Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There's really no precise time marker given for this passage, but it's generally agreed that it was still around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Both Pastor Eric and Pastor Adam have provided you the details in the past week of that uh, festival. And it's possible that this happens directly after the attempt upon Jesus' life by stoning because of his claim to deity. It occur occurs within the temple grounds or adjacent to it, which would be an ideal spot for a beggar to station himself, hoping that those who had just engaged in some religious ritual might feel more inclined to be generous to him. And then Jesus' disciples ask him a question that would have been natural for that time. There was the common belief during Jesus' time that there was a direct cause and effect between impairments, this man's blindness, and sin. It was thought that a baby could sin in a mother's womb if the, if the, or could be guilty of sin in the mother's womb if the mother engaged in some sinful act. It's the same argument that occupies the entire book of Job where his so-called friend says, you're suffering all of these things, all of these calamities because you've sinned. And we know in Job's case, that was in fact incorrect. So Jesus answers definitively, his blindness is not the result of a particular sin committed by his parents. 
It's not that he and his parents were sinless. They were still sons and daughters of Adam and inherited that fallen nature, that inward inclination towards rebellion against God. But there was not a specific sin that he or his parents committed that resulted in his blindness. That doesn't mean that there are not sins that result in, in uh, impairments or calamities. In 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul says, The abuse of the Lord's table has resulted for some within the church in Corinth that they were weak, sick, and some were even asleep. A euphemism for death. And Jesus tells the man that he had just healed in John 5, Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. But in this instance, his blindness was not the result of a particular sin. But God, through his son, was going to display his grace and give him what he had never had. And Jesus continues talking about the necessity of God's work. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus states that it was a compelling necessity for him to do what God had sent him to do. In this case, giving sight to the blind man. And there is a sense that this time that Jesus has to work is limited. It has to be done while it is light. It has to be done while the light of the world who is Jesus shines in the dark places. And when darkness comes, when light is gone, the work of God will be impossible to do. So the, the, the sort of the natural question is, is when, when does this occur? And I believe it's a time from the crucifixion until the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, after which Jesus promises his disciples that they will do even greater works than he did. And included in the opening statement where Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of God, the works of him who sent me. We are included within that statement. Jesus also calls us in Matthew 5 that you, we, you speaking of his disciples, and we are the light of the world. A time of darkness was coming when Jesus would be removed. But in his place, we are given the glorious task and responsibility and privilege of bringing light to the world. As we share the good news of what Christ has done, that people might be drawn to him and come to faith. When Jesus sees the blind man, his mission as one sent by God was to demonstrate God's grace and God's power. He was compelled to give sight to the man born blind. In verse 6, after saying this to his disciples, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Jesus uses various means and methods to heal. Could he have healed the man with a word? Of course he could have. He had healed from a distance in the past. But here he chose this unusual method of spit and mud and placing it on the, good, on the man's eyes. And there's a ton of discussion in the commentaries just wondering why he chose this particular method. Jesus could have been reenacting the creation story where mankind is created from the dust of the ground. And here he gives man's, he recreates this man's sight. In verse 7, he tells the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. 
This pool was a result of a 600-yard-long tunnel that was uh, dug in the time of Hezekiah. And its sole purpose was to bring water into the city of Jerusalem so that in time of war, when a siege was laid upon the city of Jerusalem, they would have water. And we're going to come back to this because that little parenthetical statement in there, which means sent, is very important. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. And his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Another said, nah, it only looks like him. As I read through this passage, I was struck by the reality that this man who had probably begged since he was old enough to sit on a street corner near their temple in Jerusalem, who had had countless people walk by him during that time, was by and large invisible. Even his neighbors go, I'm not sure if it's a guy or not. They could have been struck by, well, it can't be the guy because he can see. But I really believe... that they had become so accustomed to him sitting in the same place, looking for the same thing, that he no longer mattered. If you drive around Fairbanks, uh, especially around Fred Meyer, there are three different individuals that stand on the street corner with signs. I bet you all of us, the first time we saw them, we we were intrigued. We look at their sign and go, what's going on? Maybe even the second time. I'll tell you, I'll confess right now, I drive right past him. I know what the sign says, and I totally ignore him. This man had been ignored by his friends, his family, and his neighbors. Not his family, his neighbors, to the degree they weren't sure if it was him. They had encountered him regularly, but not had, ta- had not taken the time to look. And as a result, no one was sure of his identity, but finally the man insists, I am the man. How then were your eyes open in verse 10, they ask. And he said, the man they called, they called Jesus. He made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they ask him. I don't know, he said. Jesus was, he, he did this work, but he wasn't recognized for it. His disciples saw, and, uh, saw him healing the blind man, but the blind man, he, Jesus didn't stand around for recognition, didn't stand around for conversation at this particular point. The man simply went to the pool, doing what Jesus said, and he was healed. So continuing in verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees, they probably his neighbors and friends, brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. That should throw up a big red flag for us. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Jesus is going to find himself with, in trouble with the Pharisees again. Those fanatical protectors, not of God's law, but the laws that they had created to keep people in bondage and submission. Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and thus violated these prohibitions. The prohibition against kneading. He had taken saliva and mud and kneaded it together. The prohibition against mixing. Before he kneaded, he had mixed it together. The prohibition against anointing. The prohibition against healing unless life was in danger. 
and he was probably guilty of spitting in public and the theft of temple dirt. The Pharisees were more than a religious sect that opposed Jesus. There was more than going on than theological disagreements about theological, about Sabbath rules. And as a class, as a class concerning the Pharisees, Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of good to say about them. In Matthew, I would urge you just to sort of read through Matthew 23. This is, uh, this is abbreviated, speak, Jesus speaking of the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You travel over land and sea to win one single convert. And when you have succeeded, you have made him twice as much a child of hell as you are. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You, have sh- you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. You clean the outside of a cup and a dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will be clean also. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and weakness. Jesus doesn't have a whole lot of good to say about the Pharisees because of their oppression and subjugation of the people. They ruled by fear and intimidation. But they began to debate what Jesus did to give the man sight. And there are really two groups in this debate. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. The fundamental assumption of this group is that if a person does not keep the Sabbath as outlined by their 36 classes of prohibitions, then there is absolutely, there is absolutely no possibility that he can be from God. Their bottom line was Sabbath keeping, regardless of any other evidence to the contrary. This Sabbath keeping and this alone was the benchmark from which everything else had to be measured. But there was another group that said, how can a sinner perform such signs? This group had a broader perspective. I'm certain they considered Sabbath keeping, but they also considered, hey, let's let's just think about what this guy just did. Let's think about what Jesus just did. He took a man who was born blind from birth and gave him sight. And what Jesus did requires the power of God. And the power of God is not available to a Sabbath-breaking sinner. Maybe, just maybe, our narrow interpretation of what was allowed during the Sabbath needs to be reevaluated. Maybe what Jesus did on the Sabbath needs to be investigated again. And John tells us, so they were divided. Can you imagine the reverberations within that group? It's really profound. There might be, they considered, a more fundamental element to what it means to be part of God's people than a rigid adherence to Sabbath keeping. Maybe healing a man born blind tells us something about the person who performed the miracle and about God and what he expects of us. 
Maybe there is more in keeping with the heart of God than making sure that you refrain from those 39 classes of forbidden activities on the Sabbath. So to get things cleared up, this group that was divided, they turned again to the blind man in verse 17. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened, and the man replied, he is a prophet. And still they did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until he sent, until they sent for his parents. So they don't believe the guy's testimony. They don't believe the man's story. All because Jesus did something on the Sabbath that he should not have. Is this your son, they ask? Is this the one who was born blind? How is it he can now see? And the parents answer in verse 20. We know he's our son. And we know he was born blind. So there is the establishment of the fact. But now he can see. There is the evidence of the miracle. But who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. The Pharisees ruled by fear and intimidation. And here is evidence of it in verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. Being part of the synagogue was a vital part of Jewish life. It was the social as well as the religious center of a person's life. To be excluded from the synagogue was really to be relegated to the very edges of their society. It was a dreadful fate, one that his parents tried, if they can, to avoid. And there were two different kinds of excommunication from the synagogue. The first was a 30-day ban in which a person could then be reinstated. The second was for life. Once instituted, it was permanent. So it's understandable that the parents deferred to their son. Did they know how his sight was restored? Undoubtedly. I'm sure the man came and go, I met a guy named Jesus, and he gave me back his sight, or gave me back my sight. But they were unwilling to suffer the consequences of acknowledging who Jesus is. And it's interesting, by the end of the first century, there was actually an edict that, uh, which declared a specific ban upon it against the followers of the Nazarene. We see an escalation, not only uh, as time goes on. So we're continuing in verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner. Thus far the Pharisees have, believe, have refailed to believe what the man has said. Now they want the truth and nothing but the truth. The restoration of his sight cannot have occurred the way the man said. Because they know that Jesus is a sinner. And a sinner cannot invoke the healing power of God. And here's where the man, and I love this guy, he really begins to cop an attitude with him. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Let's not get into a theological debate I can't discuss the minutia of the law and Sabbath keeping with you. Let's deal with this reality. I was blind and now I see. Score. (laughs) Never ever 
underestimate the power of a personal testimony. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is what Jesus has done to show himself real to me. A skeptic can always write it off as a delusion, but there is no argument against it. This man didn't want to enter into a theological debate about Sabbath keeping. He goes, here's the reality of it. All my life I've been sitting on that street corner begging. You've probably walked by and not given me anything. That's thy reality and here I stand before you and I can sing. And then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? And his response is in verse 27, I've already told you and you haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to come as, become his disciples too? <laughs> Here he really ups the ante. He's already told his story about the mud and the trip to Siloam. If they want to hear it again, it must be for one reason and one reason only. They are considering whether or not to become Jesus' disciples. And what is implied in that statement is that this man had already become a disciple of Christ. I'm not really sure if he was serious as he threw that out to him, but you've got to admire the chutzpah that he has to bring it before him. And they hurled, in verse 28, they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples, we're disciples of Moses. We, don't, we know that God spoke through Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Apparently, they weren't too interested in becoming Jesus' disciples, since they believed being a disciple of Moses was by and far more than enough. They were assured that God had spoken through Moses, and he had, but someone greater than Moses was here, and they refused to hear them. They had constructed a box so tight that it was impossible to consider that God's revelation might extend beyond it. Their box was this big. The box that Christ brings is infinite. They failed to consider the promises God had made concerning the coming Messiah of whom Moses had spoken. And then the man answered. Now this, this is where the attitude really gets sort of ramped up. Now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from? Yet he opens my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. No one, no one has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The man keeps driving the point home based upon the fact that there is no record in Israel's history. There is no Old Testament record of a person born blind receiving their sight. And he keeps hammering home the facts of the case. You don't know where Jesus comes from. If he were not for, from God, he would be powerless. But he has done what has never been done before. Where did he get the power? You know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he listened to Jesus, which is demonstrated by his healing. Therefore, your, con your characterization of Jesus as a sinner is wrong. And what is implied is that your Sabbath regulations are wrong. You have made a huge mistake in your approach to the law of Moses, whom you claim to follow. Your accusation against and rejection of Jesus is based upon a fiction. Where, uh, where the man makes a statement, now that is remarkable. It, because of the, the construction and the Greek grammar, this, this one commentator says it can be translated this way. Um, 
This, this is the really miraculous thing. Your unbelief in face of evidence is more of a miracle than my cure. Regardless of the evidence that was going to be presented to them, there was no amount of evidence that was ever going to change their mind. Because their fundamental ground, the fundamental ground of what they believe is if you break the Sabbath, you're a sinner. And to this attitude, to this chutzpah this man has, they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth, reverting to the norm. You are afflicted, you were afflicted with blindness because you were a sinner. How dare you lecture us? His logic was irrefutable, but they refused to listen to it. And they threw him out. You are, and always have been, they are saying, a dirty rotten sinner out you go and not only did they possibly throw him they may have possibly thrown him physically from their presence but it's implied that he was thrown out of the synagogue to his challenge to their theological prejudice Jesus is a sabbath breaker thus a sinner and his allegiance to Jesus as a prophet was more than they could take and violating a whole host of pharisaical protocols, because there were protocols on excluding, excommunicating somebody from the Sabbath or from the synagogue, they gave the guy the boot. Continuing in verse 35, and Jesus heard they had thrown him out, and when he found them, he said, "Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir?" The man asked. "Tell me, so that I may believe in him." And Jesus said, "You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one." speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. It's interesting to note that the man who had just been defending Jesus before the Pharisees, which took a lot of intestinal fortitude, had never seen him, had never seen Jesus. Jesus told him to go to the pool and be healed. So when Jesus approaches the man and asks the question, the man doesn't realize who he is. And in Jesus's question, he uses a term that is pregnant with meaning the son of man. It conveys the idea of judge of all men. It's also a substitute for the title of the Messiah as the revelation of God to man. And this man's response is a polite, tell me who he is, sir. And then when Jesus reveals himself as the healer, the same Greek word, kurios, becomes Lord. I believe in the second term, or the second use of the term, the man acknowledges Jesus as God and worships him. And it's interesting, this is the only place in the Gospel of John where Jesus is worshipped. And Jesus continues, For judgment I have come into the world, so the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Jesus uses what he has just done in the life of this man to illustrate the point. The blind will see. The man was physically blind and he was given sight. The man was spiritually blind and he was given sight. Both of these healings are due to the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus transitions to just the spiritual, unless you believe he was about to make a whole host of people blind when he says, I have come into the world for judgment. This is not the Jesus meek and mild in the words of Pastor Eric. This is Jesus coming who will not brook constant resistance of the religious leaders who place adherence to their man-made laws about the Sabbath 
above the welfare of those who need the touch of God. He was going to make those who, could, who thought they could see blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and they asked, What? Are we blind too? If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. There is an account for ignorance. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. I'm a pretty literal guy. When I come to the the scriptures, I look at it pretty much in face value. I taught the Song of Solomon in a Sunday school class about 15 years ago. And let me tell you, if there was one book I wanted to spiritualize, it was probably that one. But I didn't. I took it at face value. But this week, this passage screams for a spiritual interpretation. And as I studied this week, I was impressed anew with the depth and the beauty of Scripture. John was a fisherman, not someone we normally associate as a profound literary figure. But this really is, this really is an amazing passage. The man, remember I talked about that parenthetical statement in the very beginning where Jesus says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then the parenthetical statement is, which means sent. The man was directed to the pool. The th- 70 times in the gospel of John, Jesus is referred to or refers to himself as the one who was sent. As the one who is sent, he comes with the authority of the one who sent him. He comes with the message of the one who sent them. He come, sent him. He comes with the honor, the words, the teaching, the judgments, and the work of the one who sent him. The man is sent to the pool of Siloam for the healing of blindness. His sight was restored, but he was given spiritual eyes to see. And you see it through the passage as he refers to Jesus. First, Jesus is just a man. That's what he calls him in verse 7. And then in verse 11, Jesus is a prophet. Then in verse 33, we see he is one come from God. And at the end of this passage, he is the Lord worthy of worship. As the man reveled in the fact that he could see and as he came face to face with Christ, He confessed him as Lord, which drives us back to the whole purpose of the gospel of John. It's that we might believe. So let me ask you, where are you in this process? Is Jesus a man? Is he a prophet? Is he from God? Or is he a Lord? Is he your Lord, worthy of worship? The story begins with a beggar sitting in darkness. No hope that he could ever see the light of day. He never had. But Jesus came and made all the difference. His night was turned to day. His hopelessness was changed to hope. His destiny was changed from hell to heaven. Blindness to sight. Darkness to enlightenment. At one time, all of us were blind, staggering around in the darkness. Just as the man in John 9 was unable to restore his own sight, we are unable to heal ourselves. We must also come to the one who has been sent if we're to receive spiritual sight. If we want to have our eyes open, there's only one source, Jesus. Let's pray.
God, may you open the eyes of our heart that we may see you for who you truly are. Thank you for your grace. Amen.